Welcome back to another episode of Sip and Politic. I'm Carla Marie Davis. I'm Joy Malanza. Do you know what this moment feels like? Hmm. Do you know that SpongeBob meme Mm -hmm. where he's like leaning against the tree and there's sweat beads (laughs) forming on his forehead or that TikTok audio where it's like, hey, (laughs) hey, that's what this feels like in this moment right now, because obviously, you know, it's been a couple weeks. Mm -hmm plus two since we've last recorded and I'm not gonna waste time making definitive declarative statements Mm -hmm. like we will never skip a week again because clearly but here's what I will say one we are excited to get back into this Mm -hmm. and we will continue to try to be as consistent as we can and secondly and perhaps more importantly thank you so much for rocking with us we really appreciate it and we are excited for the growth and the continuation of this podcast and as joy so eloquently said last time if you want to see more of us share 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 exactly and also because you know we have our day jobs we have other passion projects and i was traveling for a while so things just kind of got hectic and sometimes being able to be consistent can be a little bit stifled by mm-hmm. all those things going on in life. But we really, really want to dedicate more time to this podcast. So mm-hmm. if you can read between the lines of what I'm saying, if you want to see <laughs> yes. more of us, you know what to do. <laughs> Let's make a commitment to share with three friends today. Exactly. Please do it. We gotta get on your Zoom. <laughs> we gotta get on your Zoom, girl. <laughs> exactly. Now, with that being said, there is so much shit that went down over the past few weeks mm-hmm. while we were gone. The Supreme Court made this flurry of decisions and then dipped, thwarting justice, rolling back progress. You know, their typical pattern of behavior. Mm -hmm. The writers and the actors are on strike, which is very exciting Mm -hmm. um, to see this momentum building. But it's also really interesting to see the ways that some of people's politics and allegiances Mm -hmm. are being tested in interesting ways. Sheehan orchestrated the most fail of a fail of an influencer marketing trip. And then got hit with a RICO charge. I guess the feds were like, we'll take a beat from targeting rappers for a second (laughs) and hit Sheehan. Um, Kiki Palmer's baby daddy showed his whole ass on the internet. I mean, you wanted to be all big and bag. And now you fumbled the bag. You lost you America's sweetheart. How does that feel? He really thought he'd get on the internet and able to pile on Kiki Palmer. Him and the other one. Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill. Not piling on Kiki Palmer, right. but like similar like, vibes. Exactly. Like twinning him. Like that was very much that. <laughs> the misogyny was in full force. Fully. Fully. And uh, any of those topics would make for great conversation today. But I think we're going to go in a slightly different downward direction mm-hmm. and do a deep dive, emphasis on the deep dive, mm-hmm. into another topic. And that is the submersible full of millionaires and billionaires that went missing and ultimately imploded. Mm-hmm. And... For me personally, when I'm bored, and tell me what you might do when you're bored, Joy, Mm -hmm. um, I might crack open a new book. Mm -hmm. I might paint. I don't know. What would you do, Joy? Yeah, I like to go on really long walks sometimes. Yes, hot girl walk. Yes, yes, yes. Relatively normal, low-key things. Exactly. If I'm seeking a bit of thrill, I might, at the height of my um, bad decisions, might text an an ex um, who is somehow both... Way too old for me, but also so much less mature. How How does that happen? But for the men who boarded this submersible to go view the Titanic's wreckage, they definitely have a higher threshold for thrill Mm -hmm. and more tolerance for risk 
than the rest of us. And the fact that they as individuals also have more wealth than any of us ever could, even if we lived our life 100, 200, 300 times over, those two things cannot be decoupled. And we'll get to that in a second. But the situation really captivated the world's attention. And it was really, really interesting to see the swiftness with which we saw the mobilization of resources Mm -hmm. to try to find and rescue these people. It was also really interesting to see how conversation played out online. Part of the internet didn't lose any sleep over this. They're like unconcerned, unbothered. And then the other side of the internet was triggered by that fact and wanted us all down on our knees on our Madonna shit, you know, praying around the clock. There's so much there there. There's so much to get into here. So we're just gonna dive. right in. We're going to get into some tea on Oceangate and its founders because there are so many nuggets there that help to explain how we ended up in this situation. We're going to talk about the five individuals who decided despite or in spite of all the warnings that it would be a good idea to plunge to the bottom of the deep blue sea in a glorified tube of toothpaste that is operated by a video game controller And we're also going to talk about, amongst other things, death. Is it truly the great equalizer? Mm -hmm. Easy topics. Light work. So even though for a lot of us, we just heard about Ocean Gate recently, they've been taking expeditions since 2009. Mm -hmm. That's a long, long time of expeditions. Mm -hmm. However, those expeditions were not without their own issues. So I'm just going to read a little bit of an excerpt from an article that we will link, of course, so you can take a look at the article yourselves as well. But, and I quote, Oceangate has been carrying out deep ocean expeditions since 2009. Over the years, it has conducted more than 200 dives with its three submersible vessels in the Atlantic, Pacific, and Gulf of Mexico. The Titan was designed to go to the deepest of them all, able to reach depths of over 13,000 feet, according to the company. The Titan is obviously the one that imploded. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't the vessel's first trip to the Titanic. Early expeditions had been planned as far back as 2018, but, this is important, technical and regulatory snags had prevented them from being able to be carried out. It wasn't until 2021, then again in 2022, that the the Titan made the first of several dives to the most famous shipwreck in the world. While generally successful, those expeditions hadn't been without their own problems. This fatal dive would have been the vessel's 14th trip to the remains of the Titanic. So... Clearly, they've had years and years and years of issues with regulations Mm -hmm. and trying to cut corners and having issues that come out as a result. Of course, it was more recently that that, that they were doing deeper dives. The first couple of dives were more higher up in Mm -hmm. the ocean, not as far down deep. And just to emphasize how deep this was, that is 400 atmospheric pressures. That's how deep the Titanic is. So... Obviously, humans cannot withstand that amount of pressure. Mm-hmm. So that's 400 times the pressure as of the ocean as that we're feeling right now. Like, we're here on, on land. So this times 400 is how much pressure you would be facing deep down mm-hmm. on the ocean floor. So they've had issues for years, etc. But in 2018, they had a whistleblower who came out and really tried to make known that this company was trying to cut too many corners and that it would lead to to harming people. So another quote here for you guys. A whistleblower was fired after raising concerns about its first-of-a-kind carbon fiber hull and other systems before its maiden voyage, according to a filing in a 2018 lawsuit 
first reported by the Insider and New Republic. David Lockridge was terminated in 2018 after presenting a scathing quality control report on the vessel to OceanGate senior management, including founder and CEO Stockton Rush, who was on board the missing vessel. Mm-hmm. According to a court filing by Lockridge, the preamble to his report read, now is the time to properly address items that may pose a safety risk to personnel. Verbal communication of the key items I have addressed in my attached document have been dismissed on several occasions. Mm-hmm. So I now feel I must make this report so that there is an official record in place. And it wasn't just him as a whistleblower coming out and saying this. James Cameron, who's a film director, has also himself done several expeditions down to the Titanic. He's actually done 33 of them. Oceangate has been in those circles. People have been talking about how bad the regulations were. Mm-hmm. And when you hear James Cameron talk about how much testing mm-hmm. they had to do for every single expedition, the amount of quality control sometimes took years. You can't even compare that to what Oceangate was up to. And Oceangate had been warned several times by people, you know, by his peers, the people in that field consistently. So it's not like this is all coming out of the blue and they had no idea. They fully knew. And you know what the wildest part is? After all of this, the submarine has imploded. Everyone's gone. The other co-founder, because it's Sutton Rush, and has another co-founder whose name is Guillermo Sonlin. So Guillermo Sonlin told Insider that a handful of people, including James Cameron, Dave Lockridge, um, and some other folks as well, had cast a negative shadow on Ocean Gate and its Titan submersible. So it's them. They're the problem. Right. Not you and your little can yeah. that you sent down to the ocean floor. So after all of this, there's still no sense of remorse or, you know, uh, feeling the need to right this wrong yeah. that clearly claims some lives. Absolutely. And on the regulations piece, the submersible space is really interesting. And admittedly, I had zero knowledge of anything about submersibles before coming into contact with the story. But you might be wondering, like, how did they get away then with, Mm -hmm. you know, not having these certifications and things like that? There is something called the 1993 Passenger Vessel Safety Act, and that does require that submersibles that carry passengers be registered with the Coast Guard. But there are workarounds here. So in the Titans case... Because it is loaded onto a Canadian ship, mm-hmm. and then it dives into the North Atlantic near Newfoundland, it doesn't need to register with the country or follow really any rules. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they're always going to find those loopholes and mm-hmm. sail right through them. I want to share a, a quote from Stockton Rush that kind of gets to his mindset and mm-hmm. why he was so anti-regulation mm-hmm. and just his thoughts on that all. Very illuminating. Through a 2019 blog post on OceanGate's website, we gained some more insight into Russia's views on regulations. The blog post was titled, Why Isn't the Titan Classed? And this was in response to whistleblowers like Lockridge and just the broader, you know, submersible community being like, yo, bro, like this shit is not safe, Mm -hmm. essentially. Um, And he wrote, quote, Bringing an outside entity up to speed on every innovation before it is put into real-world testing is anathema to rapid innovation. Pop off, Ayn Rand. Mm -hmm. Pop off, Ayn Rush. My dude, you were getting ready to use a video game controller. The same controller that I used to play NBA Street when I was in high school. To bring these people 13,000 feet below the ocean surface. 
you think that you're this great innovator. Mm -hmm. What you are is a MacGyver. Mm -hmm. And that's generous. Mm -hmm. That's all you are. But they're always concerned about innovation Mm -hmm. when there's no innovation to be found. Exactly. And I think the most ironic thing of all of this is that billionaires, millionaires, capitalists, people who love the system of capitalism are always talking about how uh, regulations stymie innovation, that they get in the way of making profits and really moving forward because regulations are there to make sure that people aren't being exploited that people aren't being killed when you think of the time before regulations Mm -hmm. think of like child labor the fact that children could really be used in the mines because there was nothing to protect them i grew up in kenya and one of the things that really made it important for us to to leave was because regulations really just are so shoddily kept up with that you really can't trust that the building that you're in just won't collapse on you because they cut corners in order to make more money. Mm-hmm. So regulations are there to protect people. Boeing cutting all those regulations, guess what? Planes are falling from the sky yeah. because they cut corners. Regulations are there, again, to make sure that everybody is safe. And yes, it does cut into profits. And that's why capitalism is so incompatible with humanity because capitalism says anything for profit. So if some people die, well, it is what it is. It's a sacrifice we're willing to make. Whereas looking at things from a humanistic or from a humane perspective is saying no profit doesn't come before people Mm -hmm. so we have to put people first and how ironic that the same people who made their wealth because that 250k quarter million isn't made you know having enough money that you're able to just throw away 250k like that Mm -hmm. you don't get to that without some 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 exploitation on your end that some exploitation that also includes cutting through regulations. So how ironic that it's those very same cutting corners, that same desire to usurp regulations that actually killed them. Yeah. Isn't that ironic? Very ironic. And the thing about it, too, is that it's not just that they want to make profit. It's that they need to have obscene amounts of profit. Because even if they were to pay for the regulations, there's still enough padding so in their much. profit to mm-hmm. be able to afford that and still make money off the exactly. top of it. Exactly. I want to share another quote from Stockton Rush that I think speaks to his motivation for doing to embarking on this venture, because uh, I think it helps to explain why he was so willing to cut corners mm-hmm. in addition to the greed of it all. Something notable about Rush is that he had dreams of being an astronaut. He graduated from Princeton with a degree in aerospace engineering you know, visions of sailing up to sailing, visions of <laughs> <laughs> flying up to space, you know, played on loop in his mind. This was his ultimate goal. In 2004, Richard Branson launched the first aircraft into space. And upon receiving this news, suddenly the sexiness and the allure of being an astronaut had mm-hmm. completely dissipated for Rush. And in fact, he told the Smithsonian, quote, I had this epiphany that this was not all I wanted to do. I didn't want to go up into space as a Taurus. I wanted to be Captain Kirk on the Enterprise. I wanted to explore. And I think that's Mm -hmm. significant because it shows the motivation there. He was never interested in being an astronaut because he wanted to bear witness to the beauty and the magnificence and the vastness that is space. He wanted to earn praise. He wanted to be... A pioneer. He mm-hmm. wanted he wanted to have his name in the history books. Mm-hmm. He is driven by ego. He is driven by self-interest. And we also see that there's like this manufactured sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. So of course you're gonna be willing to skimp on regulations and certifications 
when that would also sacrifice time. Mm -hmm. And for someone who accolades is their number one concern, time poses a greater threat than the risk or the potential for harm. Mm -hmm. So that's one piece of it. He also made mention of the fact that he was really interested in mapping out this path forward Mm -hmm. for humans to live underwater once land becomes uninhabitable. I do not know much about this movement to colonize the ocean's floor, but what I do know is that it will undoubtedly follow what we see with colonization mm-hmm. above on land. Mm-hmm. The disruption of pre-existing, you know, wildlife and ecosystems in order to build out these what I assume are under underwater bunkers that can accommodate, you know, this influx of rich humans. And there is going to be a group of people uh, like the rushes of the world who will make a lot, a lot of money off of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, as much as this is a conversation about capitalist greed and it's that that certainly is the lead character here. I think that this situation was enabled by a confluence of factors, which also includes like a cockiness or a hubris and also self aggrandizement which mm-hmm. i can never pronounce <laughs> yes you said so much that was just so insightful especially the, the whole time poses a greater threat because more so than harm mm-hmm. because when you think about capitalism all these companies are always trying to be first to market first to market first mm-hmm. to market with everything so that really does encapsulate how incompatible capitalism is with anything that's humane anything that's for the people, anything that doesn't cause harm. When you think about these millionaires and billionaires fantasizing about colonizing the ocean floor, mm-hmm. or the musks of the world who want to go to Mars and have their own Elysium, it's really after plundering the Earth, mm-hmm. after all those resources that they've taken from, uh, from, se- from several communities, the regulations that they've cut in order to ensure that they don't have to be told that they can't dump nuclear waste into water that people are going to be using. After they've done all that, then they're like, actually, I'm going to exit stage right, stage yeah. left, and actually just leave this place altogether, mm-hmm. and y'all can stay here. Because trust me, you're not going with them. Right. You're staying right here, Buki, mm-hmm. with the rest of us. <laughs> and they're going to go to their version of Elysium after literally doing everything to cause harm and to give nothing back that's their plan so it's really interesting that you know his vision of colonizing the ocean floor really does tie into the vision of going to mars as well Mm -hmm. it's all just escaping once you've caused and wreaked a lot of havoc and i always find it interesting that billionaires and millionaires and capitalists are always talking about innovation but they don't want to do things like invest in public goods that help people in general Mm -hmm. don't you think that people can innovate more when they're not hungry Mm -hmm. when they're not housing insecure when they're not worrying about where the next one's going to come from People who are in a good economic spot can innovate. Mm -hmm. People who are not tied to their jobs and thinking, oh, I have to work 20 hours, uh, you know, of course, 20 hours a day isn't exact. Maybe not. Maybe not. Some people really are working 20 hours a day just to, you know, feed their families. People who are in those positions can't innovate. What time do they have to innovate? They're stuck making you a profit while they get barely anything and they're stuck in that loop constantly. So it's just really interesting that all these capitalists talk about innovation, but only from the perspective of cutting regulations, never from the perspective of ensuring that everybody has the opportunity to actually innovate because they actually have a full belly and a house that they can sleep in and get full eight hours of sleep and think of new ideas and have money to actually invest in things that they want to see in the future. Mm-hmm. 
Make it make sense. Eat the rich. (laughs) (laughs) Foreshadowing. (laughs) So we've talked about Stockton Rush, the CEO of OceanGate. He was one of the passengers on the submersible, but there were four other passengers. So let's talk a little bit about them as well. So there was Pakistani businessman Shazada Dawood. His son, his son was 19 years old, Suleiman Dawood. British billionaire and explorer Hamish Harding. And deep sea explorer and Titanic expert Paul Henri Narjolet. And obviously we mentioned the tickets are $250,000. Obviously the target demo for this, you know, for these excursions are rich motherfuckers essentially mm-hmm. and i think that that's the official term that demographers and social scientists use <laughs> um, <laughs> these were multimillionaires and billionaires and the fact that these men were wealthy explains so much of how we got here mm-hmm. it explains how they got themselves into the situation one obviously in the most literal of senses because they could afford to ride the ride mm-hmm. but also the delusions of grandeur like yes. we know that money makes people think that they're above the law and that doesn't only really apply to like societally constructed laws also laws of physics <laughs> gravity oceanic <laughs> force exactly. you know um two it explains i think the absence of friction or any hesitance to spend millions of dollars on this massive search and rescue operation, Mm -hmm. which stands in stark contrast with the complete disregard for a larger group of non-white, non-wealthy people who went missing just days prior. We're going to get there. And three, it explains the people who were so quick to type fast on Twitter and pull out their ring light to defend these people. But I also want to talk about just the whole um, extreme tourism of it all, because this kind of expedition is not unique. It's part of a broader um, niche, but also very lucrative and growing industry where the danger is kind of the appeal, right? And so we see wealthy people happily shelling out hundreds of thousands of dollars to essentially put their lives at risk, right? It's things like you know, taking a trip to a remote location where contending with the hostile elements mm-hmm. makes it difficult to survive or climbing like a treacherous terrain on a mountain, something mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, money doesn't shield you from death, clearly, mm-hmm. but it does kind of insulate you from or at least mitigate the impact of like the blunt force trauma of life's hardest challenges and so when your life is so devoid of like any tension and it's just smooth sailing, you start to seek it out. Like for the rest of us, we're in a constant battle exactly. with life daily. <laughs> so we're not necessarily like interested in inviting more danger into our <laughs> lives. But for exactly. people like this, when you have so much money that you can taste all the things, you can experience all the places, you can wear the finest of cloths. Just regular, quote unquote, normal rich bitch shit Mm -hmm. no longer has an appeal. So you constantly need to like up the ante, Mm -hmm. go harder, do more. And also, again, hubris, which is, you know, the it girl of this episode. In a way, you can kind of understand how someone who is a millionaire or billionaire believes that they are so untouchable, given the way that we as a society coddle and protect them And put them on a pedestal. Mm -hmm. Like, we see this disparity in treatment in everything from things like the two-tiered criminal justice system to the disparity in the, like, deployment of emergency response resources. So they're able to escape the grasp of accountability on a daily. They're able to escape 
you know, the duty of fair contribution. Of course, they think that they can also escape the grasp of death. Exactly. Um, unfortunately, the ocean taught us otherwise. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's have you heard the term like WPS or like white people shit? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like sometimes <laughs> sorry, white people, <laughs> but sometimes like white people shit will refer to, um, I don't know, like clapping off beat or like mm-hmm. seasonless food. Um, but we also often talk about like bungee diving, just like mm-hmm. these kind of like a uh, thrill seeking things that you can do as WPS white people shit. And the thinking there is because of the enduring nature of white supremacy, many white people just live kind of a more cushy life, mm-hmm. aren't on a daily battle for survival every single day. And so that leads them to thrill seeking because there's an absence of thrill in their lives. And we can broaden this and expand it. And this is like rich people shit it's the same same kind of concept Mm -hmm. and underlying rich people shit is the fact that they have more money than they know what to do with Mm -hmm. so they are trying to find other ways to spend it and it's almost like being caught in an addiction cycle because again what carla said regular rich bitch shit isn't enough anymore yeah you need to get something a little bit more interesting and it's always so fascinating to me how wealthy people showcase to us that they have so much money that they don't know what to do with it, that they use it on things like this. Which, in turn, makes the masses think, oh, so this is why I'm not getting paid a living wage. So you can sit in a tin can and go down to the bottom of the ocean. This is why I'm not being paid a living wage. Because, again, that wealth that they have is generated from exploitation, etc. Even if you're um, inheriting wealth, and maybe that's how you got your wealth, where did that wealth come from, etc. So I think that's really, really important to know. And especially when you think about... um, the the Dawoods in particular because they're a really wealthy family in Pakistan. The dichotomy between the rich and the poor in Pakistan is so much more vast than that in the Western world. And not just Pakistan, but generally countries outside of the imperial core in general. Um, The other word to use is developing countries, third world countries. I don't like to use those words. Um, So I prefer outside the imperial core. But the poverty that is experienced outside the imperial core, you cannot compare to the poverty experienced within the imperial core. So, for example, poverty in the United States, while dire and it's awful and should not exist, there's at least certain things that you can at least sign up for government help or government assistance. There's something. In countries outside of the imperial core, government assistance just really isn't as robust, especially because some of the issues that we have is just issues of corruption. So even if there is government assistance, it's A, being mismanaged, mishandled. And the reason also why some people are in poverty is because the government steals from the people or is in cahoots with, business pe- with businessmen and women and business people in general to continue to siphon wealth from the masses and hold it only for the upper class. Mm-hmm. The upper class and the elites of countries outside the imperial core act the same way as like Western elites. They do the same things, and I would argue it might be even worse because they see the poverty that their actions are creating very much firsthand, and they're continuing to be in cahoots with the government, etc., um, external elites themselves who come to the country and have all their business dealings that continue to harm people in their country. Mm-hmm. So it's even more, like, obviously everybody on that ship and on that submers- submersible, their wealth generated in unethical ways, but even more so when you're coming from wealth generated outside the imperial core. And again, I actually do want to say this too, about that kind of wealth. 
somebody who's able to pay 250k in USD, the kind of wealth that they have mm-hmm. in Pakistan goes so much further mm-hmm. than if they lived in a Western country mm-hmm. too. So it's not just that they're even earning USD, but they're earning billions in that. That is just so much money that p- everyday people in that country just don't see, and they're not earning in USD at all. So those are also added elements to that mm-hmm. too. It's interesting to see the way that capitalism and its partnering systems of oppression assign value to human life based on things like class, mm-hmm. things like race. Um, we were talking about Pakistan mm-hmm. and this uh, billionaire, Shazada Dawood, who was on the submersible. And he was technically a British citizen, but he came from Pakistan. Mm-hmm. But the very same week that the Titan submersible went missing, just a few days prior, in fact, there was another ship that had gone missing with a larger group of people. It was Mm -hmm. almost 750 people that had capsized in the Mediterranean Sea. Mm -hmm. Many of the passengers on this boat were from Pakistan. This did not receive 24-hour news coverage, Mm -hmm. nor did it receive anywhere near the scale in terms of response and and search and rescue mission that Ocean Gate did. Again, this is a conversation about poverty and class. It's also a conversation about racism and xenophobia because we have to talk about the way that European governments have lurched rightward, especially in terms of their stance on immigration, Mm -hmm. particularly of non-white immigrants. And that lack of response for these non-white, non-wealthy folks who were in desperate need of Mm -hmm. support. There were 50 to 100 children on that boat. Mm -hmm. 500 are still missing to this day, right? No response there. That stands in stark contrast with this massive search and rescue operation operation coordinated by the U.S. Coast Guard. It was a multinational operation, and we don't have concrete numbers at this moment, but it's estimated to cost millions upon millions of dollars guess who's not paying for that bill ocean gate mm-hmm. or the estates of any of these you know multimillionaires and exactly. billionaires the u.s taxpayers are going to have to pay exactly. for this this expedition it is devastatingly but also perfectly illustrative of you know like i said how these systems of oppression teach us to see who is valuable versus who is not and it wasn't just the u.s that mobilized we saw assets from france Canada, it was a combination of governments and private entities. Mm -hmm. The whole world stopped and came together to find these five individuals who voluntarily chose to plunge to the depths of the ocean, knowing the dangers, knowing the warning. But we need to funnel all of our attention, all of our resources to find them. Meanwhile, the 750 people who are fleeing for survival, Mm -hmm. they don't matter. They don't deserve any response or Mm -hmm. rescue mission. Our, my neighbors are having a party upstairs. I really hope you cannot hear anything. <laughs> or they're oh doing stomp the yard. Right. <laughs> Something. Um, and it's always really interesting to me because when you see how people respond to taxpayer money being used, anytime it's something like, you know, helping social services or um, debt relief, mm-hmm. um, student debt relief, etc., people come out the woodworks complaining, complaining, screaming, crying, throwing up about their taxpayer money being misused. But your taxpayer money also goes to the Iron Dome. 
to fund the Israeli occupation. It goes to the military, literally killing civilians abroad. But you have nothing to say about that. But you have so much to say about taxpayer money helping people in actual need of it. Also, many people just weren't that upset about you know taxpayer money being used to help find these billionaires because it's, again, there's certain views of of value that we place upon people who are wealthy, even when they demand from us resources that they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Whereas we think that impoverished people, because they're there by their own bad choices, should just yeah. be discarded and thrown away. And that. Kill the cop in your head that tells you that that's a normal way to see human beings. Because it's not. Mm-mm. At all. And actually, during this time, I remember on TikTok, a lot of people... I, I was still on vacation, but I was really just looking for any material I could get mm-hmm. on people were saying about this. And this one creator on TikTok said that, oh, it's so inhumane to not care about their deaths because they're still people. And I would argue, actually, except for, you know... Um, the ninth, Suleiman. The, the, yeah, Suleiman Dawood, except for him, because, you know, there's also a lot of like, coercive elements as to why he was on that submersible. Mm-hmm. So, minus him, I would actually argue that billionaires are not people. They are entities. Mm. Because they, they function as entities. <laughs> but Mitt Romney told us corporations are people, my friend. The wealthy are just people. <laughs> Oh. Am I hurting your fee Oh my god. Um, like, I truly believe that billionaires are not people, they're entities. If you're going to come at me to say, oh, that's robbing them of their humanity, I want you to think about all the people's humanity that billionaires have to rob in order to make their wealth. So I don't care. I do not see that them as people, they're entities, they act as entities, they become little governing bodies unto themselves. Mm-hmm. In fact, when you think about, um, you know, if you're a billionaire CEO, your company is like a governing body. It's like a little government where you have to tell all these civilians what to do, when to do it, how to come to work, how to show up, how to behave, where to go, where to sit. All those things. That is governance. Mm-hmm. You are not a person anymore. You are an entity. Um, that's why when I think of like Elon Musk, I don't think, oh, Elon Musk the person. Elon Musk TM, trademark. You're a corporation unto yourself. Yeah. Because all of your wealth can literally sway political maneuvers. Yeah. Regular people don't have that power. And so this creator was saying how, oh, it's so inhumane to not see billionaires as people. People roasted her. I was like, yeah, get her. Then, because she didn't learn her lesson, she made another video about how billionaires are actually good for society because a billionaire's yacht was used to rescue some migrants who had uh, capsized in the boat in the Mediterranean. And I'm actually not sure it's the same boat as one that um, took place, the one that capsized during the Ocean Gate, Mm -hmm. because it's constantly boats in the Mediterranean, constantly. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if it was the same one, but her whole story was that, oh, well, billionaires are good for society because they, because, you you know, in these dire situations, they can deploy their resources. But it's like, you don't even see, you're looking at it from here in this myopic point of view, Mm -hmm. perspective, and you're not seeing the larger picture. The larger picture is why are people fleeing? Because of the distress caused in their home countries by maneuvers, by those same billionaires. Also, again, when I say billionaires are not people, it's because, as I said, billionaires become these governing entities. To be able to use a yacht that belongs to a billionaire. By the way, this billionaire is no longer alive, but it was his property that was used to rescue mm-hmm. um, you know, people who are, the people who had capsized. But essentially... The reason why I say billions are not people, they're governing entities, is that you have a private private property being used for a public good while on the surface, oh, it sounds very generous. But again, why is somebody able to accumulate that much 
private wealth to then decide or have their estate decide based on their whims, by the way. Yeah. Because private entities get to do things on their whims. Mm-hmm. Whatever they, whenever they wake up and like, actually, mm-hmm. I feel like they're doing this. Yeah. That's a problem. Situations like migrants um, capitalizing, those should be, people, they should be helped with public goods, public funds that are contributed to by everybody in society. But the thing is, the reason why sometimes public goods are not able to fully help people or to be fully deployed is because billionaires find ways to generate wealth and then hoard those funds privately. So they generate wealth publicly by using labor, finding loopholes on taxes, using like, um, uh, what's it called? Research and development, which is all taxpayer funded. Then they make their little profit. They hoard it privately. Then they decide, I'm going to come out and actually help this public matter that is literally in this state because of my private wealth holding. Which like, they also see? get tax benefits off of. Exactly. So it's just like a, yeah. <laughs> it's a cycle. Like, I hope that made sense. I, I, it does, If yeah. you don't take anything from this podcast today, I hope that little maneuver made sense mm-hmm. as to why billionaires just are not people. I love that framing, actually. <laughs> you know, let's just fucking get into it. Because so much of the debate surrounding this event mm-hmm. was centered on the ethics of feelings of joy Mm -hmm. in response to the demise of these billionaires. And I'm going to be honest, okay? I did not feel jubilation. I was not elated, personally. And don't come at me, don't let me in with the people (laughs) who are typing fast on Twitter talking about, y'all are so important, blah, blah, blah. Let me cook, okay? Let me rock before you put me in that category, okay? The best way that I can characterize my feelings on this would be to say that they were kind of neutral. And I will even say that I did feel bad for the 19-year-old because, to me... You don't get to choose what families you're born into. From what we know in this present moment, he has not accrued wealth Mm -hmm. through, you know, exploitation. Mm -hmm. He simply was born into that family. Right. I also don't think that the amount of bottles that you popped and the amount of times guillotine made, you know, an appearance on your Twitter feed is an indicator of how radical your politics are. (laughs) Exactly. With that being said, comma... I do think that your response to people who expressed like feelings of justice being mm-hmm. served is a tell for where you stand. Because once you start finger wagging around this issue, you are essentially policing people's response to their own oppression. And whether intentional or not, you are essentially aligning with the oppressor. Now, here we go with the dramatics. How are we being oppressed by random billionaires that we don't know? Hmm. I'm so glad that you asked. The phrase eat the rich is a mm-hmm. great kind of starting point for this conversation. It has taken up a lot of the space in our digital hallways that are our for you pages and Twitter feeds and Instagram feeds and story scroll bar. <laughs> what is that area yes. called formally? By the way, fuck you, Elon Musk. Who are these random people on my Twitter feed on top of everything else? <laughs> anyway, through exploring what eat the rich actually means. And why this call exists, one, the leftist or anti-capitalist or socialist nonchalance to the news of the implosion Mm -hmm. seems less nefarious, but also I think that that link between our state of perpetual struggle and these billionaires' state of excess Mm -hmm. starts to become clear. Mm -hmm. Eat the rich is not a new phrase. Um, But it might be new to some people. And 
if your interaction and engagement with Eat the Rich starts and stops with like a whatever the character limit is on Twitter now mm-hmm. or a meme, that might leave you with like a distorted sense of what we mean here. And to be clear, I am specifically talking to the people who are genuinely curious and seeking to understand. I'm not talking to the people who are committed to misunderstanding. Although, you know, we encourage you to continue listening too because maybe we'll convert you. Mm-hmm. It's a challenge. Let's mm-hmm. see. Let's see if we win. Okay. In regard to eat the rich, the full phrase is actually, when the people shall have nothing more to eat, they will eat the rich. And that line was delivered by French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau Rousseau, during the French Revolution, which was triggered by massive wealth inequality, famine in the streets, while the monarch was like parting it out, ah, type (laughs) shit, you know? Um, And the shortened version, eat the rich, that reverberates through the digital hallways and through the streets as people are protesting is a very succinct and punchy rallying cry. Mm -hmm. But it speaks to a larger goal of dismantling capitalism and shifting the balance of power and resources away from the hands of a small group of people to the many. Mm -hmm. Currently, the power, the resources are concentrated in the hands of this very small group of elite who have amassed so much wealth, as Joy just spoke to, through both direct and indirect exploitation. Mm -hmm. Our social and economic reality, the constant instability, the fact that we work 40 plus hours per week, multiple jobs, cannot make ends meet, the fact that people don't have access to healthcare, quality education, is directly tied to the fact that these people have amassed obscene amounts of wealth, which has been facilitated by legislative machinations that they have created in partnership with the politicians that they have bought. Mm -hmm. There are entire ecosystems and communities that have been exploited by these multimillionaires. Because I I would throw multimillionaires into there, too. I know that some people have different lines, but like multimillionaires and billionaires um, in order for them to make this wealth. Now... When we hear the term billionaire, obviously we know it's like a lot, a lot, a lot of money. But it is so massive that it is outside of the scope of our understanding. Mm -hmm. So I want us to walk through this little exercise that will help this shift in our mind from like a abstract concept Mm -hmm. to more like of a concrete amount. Mm -hmm. I found this little exercise on Tumblr and it's coming from at the last meme era um it helps us to concretize in our mind just how much a billion dollars truly is you have a billion dollars right there's a mega mansion that costs 4.5 million dollars okay it's a massive sprawling compound with greenery think like a drake's house in toronto okay we're gonna buy 50 of those now we need a car. We need to get around somehow. Mm-hmm. In addition to our driver driving us in um, Escalades and Yukon Denali's, we also need our own personal car when we go for a little joyride and we want to impress <laughs> a girl or whatever it might be. Okay, so the Bugatti Veyron, y'all's um, white fave who got up on the internet in 2020 talking about "Letter to the Culture." You remember she has that song that's like "Take me to the Hamptons, Bugatti Veyron." It costs 2.5 million dollars. We're gonna buy 12 of those. 12 Bugatti Veyrons. Mm -hmm. Next. 
we need transportation not just on land but also in the air Mm -hmm. so we're going to buy and you can clearly tell that this is not in my tax bracket um (laughs) an Embraer Lineage 1000 (laughs) and that is a private jet and we're gonna buy it for 53 million dollars next we have land we have air now we need sea okay so we're gonna buy a 369 million dollar tatouche private yacht it is longer than a football field okay next we like art right yeah so we're gonna buy (laughs) we are going to buy a monet uh monet's most expensive painting in fact it costs 90 million dollars and then we're going to buy Van Gogh's most expensive painting for $191 million. And then just for shits and gigs, we're also going to buy a diamond-encrusted uh, <laughs> skeleton, which costs $65 million. Mm-hmm. So we've gone on this massive shopping spree. We start off with a billion. We bought all of these things, 50 houses, 12 Bugattis, um, a yacht, Three pieces of super expensive art. We've probably blown through our money, right? Not even Mm -mm. a little bit. At the end of this expansive shopping spree, we have about $12 million left. 12 million black American ducats (laughs) left, okay? And... This, like, obviously this is, like, kind of lighthearted and it's funny, Mm -hmm. but I think that this exercise and breaking it down in that way helps to underscore the absurdity mm-hmm. and quite frankly the violence that the violence. is yeah violence that is people hoarding billions of dollars when there are millions of people who are unable to meet their basic foundational needs mm-hmm. like food water and shelter i do not care how expensive your how expansive your lifestyle is You cannot blow through billions of dollars in one lifetime. So your decision to hold on to and hoard this wealth when just a fraction of it could eradicate homelessness, could lift millions of people out of poverty, could provide us all with health care, education, is really, really immoral. Now, just as Joy said a few moments ago, the ultimate goal is not to get millionaires and billionaires to donate their fortune because then that ties our survival Mm -hmm. to, I think you called it their whims, whims. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like their whims and the fickleness of their interests. Mm -hmm. Also, just the whole concept of charity, and we talked about this in another episode, I don't remember what it is, but like, you know, it just keeps intact this hierarchy where it supposes that someone, because they have all this money, knows how best to help a community Mm -hmm. that they're not part of, all that. But walking through this, just places a an exclamation point behind how immoral it is to keep that amount of money. Mm-hmm. So that was talking about the state of being mm-hmm. a millionaire, the state of hoarding this money. Mm-hmm. But we also have to talk about the process of becoming a billionaire. Mm-hmm. And by the way, this exercise was talking about $1 billion. Yes. Jeff Bezos, is it like $190 billion? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's... <laughs> Just unfathomable Un- at this point. Fathomable. Unfathomable. And I just want to say $1 million is $10,000, right? So it's $100,000 10 times. That's $1 million. 
I the other day was scrolling on TikTok and you know I'm always scrolling on TikTok every day and there was this you know like those street interviews that people do mm-hmm. so this girl was doing a street interview but she was asking about people's salaries and this one lady was talking about how she makes like a hundred and something k I think it'd be like 115 120k something like that and that's a great salary mm-hmm. but this is the kicker when asked how long she'd been working she'd had a career of about 20 years and she was just now making a hundred and twenty thousand dollars everybody in their minds always idealizes making a hundred k just a hundred k alone so you're telling me that you after 20 years are just not making 120k and the person who is employing you has made more than 10 of those in one year that those are the kinds of comparisons that we hope you start to think about mm-hmm. and how obscene it actually is there's also another person who um a ups uh worker mm-hmm. who is striking who made a little video and at the time i watched it nobody was really watching it and i just like i i reposted and everything um on tiktok i thought this was a really really perfect encapsulation of why exploitation mm-hmm. isn't just about oh you're being enslaved but it's also about the fact that how much you're generating in wealth for your boss should amount to what you're making. So, for example, somebody in his comments had said, but you make $40 an hour. Like, why are you striking? This is a UPS strike. Mm -hmm. He's like, oh, you're making $40 an hour. Why are you striking? And his response was, $40 an hour is good. But the chasm between $40 an hour and what the CEO is making is is unfathomable. So, yes, that $40 an hour is not enough. It's actually not enough based on what you as a CEO is making. How have you accepted that the ruling class gets to make more than ten hundred thousands in one year while we maybe make that, maybe less, and then they get to run off? And that's that's our labor. Mm-hmm. Without our labor, how would you make that money? You wouldn't. So those are the kinds of things that we really want people as our audience when thinking about like being radical or even when somebody tries to come at you and run upon you by being like, well, you make this money, at least you're making money, but it's not enough based on what the CEO is making. I think this is a good place to tease. Joy had such a great idea to for us to do an episode on kind of combating the myths. Oh, oh yeah, I did. <laughs> we see in our comment section yes. or just like, you know, the pushback against anti-capitalist, mm-hmm. you know, right, frameworks right. and ideas and things like that. So we'll exactly. arm you with some stuff to say in uh, in response to these uh, wonderful individuals. <laughs> okay, let's get into the specifics of just how wide that gulf is between the owner and the worker. And I'm pulling this from an article in Quartz, and the title is The Average U.S. Worker Would Need Ten Times the Length of All Human History to Earn As Much as Jeff Bezos. (laughs) So there you go. The average annual income of a full-time salaried worker in the U.S. in 2018 was $46,800. Let's assume that this average worker paid no rent, paid no bills, paid no taxes, had no expenses of any kind let's pretend this person spends no money at all okay by the time their wealth amounted to one billion dollars more than twenty-one thousand years would have passed Twenty-one thousand years what was happening twenty-one thousand years ago because that is like fully uh, I, I can't, can't even, even fathom yeah, that. Yeah, I can't even <laughs> yeah. fathom 21,000 years. Yes. 
Because when you think about what we think of as antiquity, that's usually like 2,000 years ago. Just 2,000 years ago. So that times 10. But it gets even bleaker than that Mm. because that's the average. Mm -hmm. But so many people in this country, because we're speaking about like USD salary Mm -hmm. right now, don't even make the average. Let's take Amazon's lowest paid employee, for example. The lowest paid full-time Amazon worker making $15 an hour. Now, mind you, this article was written a few years ago, so this might have gone up since then. So So we need regulations, by the way. This means that the lowest paid full-time Amazon workers make $31,200 a year. Now, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos has a net worth of $130 billion dollars. Note that that is according to this article, which I mentioned was published a few years back. I'm pretty sure it's gone up since since then. But let's go with that $130 billion number. Obviously, there's such a massive gap between the lowest paid Amazon worker and the CEO, Jeff Bezos. So how long do you think that it would take for the lowest paid Amazon worker to earn as much as Bezos? Four point 15 mama million <laughs> no. years so it jumped from 21,000 um, years oh my lord it, it it really is mind-blowing and yeah. what this does is it starts to poke holes in this fallacy that these millionaires and billionaires that you know they just work so hard and they just earned this money mm-hmm as if the massive disparity in pay is just like a fair, proportionate divvying or allocation of revenue based on work and value. Exactly. So are you telling me that they work four million times more <laughs> hard than the worker? You can't possibly believe that. Also, let's talk about the fact that... In 2021, the CEO to worker compensation ratio was 398.8, meaning CEOs per hour make 398.8 times that of the worker. Mm -hmm. Whether we're talking about the UPS drivers that Joy just spoke about a minute ago, whether Mm -hmm. we're talking about writers for these massive media conglomerates, whether we're talking about food delivery workers for these massive, you know, food delivery apps, these workers through their labor, keep that operation going, Mm -hmm. keep that machine running, but they never see the returns for the work that they put in. There is essentially this legalized theft. Mm -hmm. Wealth is not earned. It is stolen. You don't see CEOs zooming around to deliver orders. They're not doing any of the things that actually make these companies profitable. And yet they reap all the benefits because we've legalized skimming off the top of what is the due earnings Mm. of these workers. It's not just direct exploitation, though. It's not just the stealing of of earnings, essentially. But there's also indirect exploitation. Joy touched on this earlier. Millionaires and billionaires protect and expand their wealth through exploitative measures like you know, take advantage of tax loopholes through mm-hmm. hoarding land, through lobbying efforts, mm-hmm. things like that. And so I say all this to say both the process of accumulating wealth, both the process of becoming a billionaire and the state of being a billionaire 
cannot be detached from exploitation, from pillaging, from systemic violence that leaves communities, millions of millions of people struggling for survival on the day to day basis. Eat the Rich is not about like setting up booby traps for billionaires, like luring them with uh, <laughs> beluga caviar and bone marrow and like the opportunity to bungee jump from space. But it's much more expansive than that. But we can understand why people have trouble mustering up concern when you understand that our struggle is directly tied to their hoarding of wealth. Exactly. And even when you think about, you know, was the submissible imploding a tragedy? That is in itself a good question. I wouldn't classify it as a tragedy. It's not that, you know, it's not like these people went on this submissible not knowing the risks. They were mm-hmm. ill-informed. They paid this money knowing full well what the risks were. The only tragic, you know, the only tragedy here is um, Suleiman. Mm-hmm. That's it in my mind. Whereas when you think about all the ways in which people die, people die from starvation, from the effects of poverty, from their bodies breaking down after years of working, after years of these absurd commutes, after years of, you know, going hungry, whatever it might be. Those are the things that the working class dies from. Those are tragedies. This avoidable Mm -hmm. little tin can of hubris Mm -hmm. is not a tragedy. And again, because it is the sort of the end point of billionaire hubris and billionaires are not people, I'm not going to shed a tear. I don't care if you think that I'm robbing these people of their humanity because, again, to master to amass that much wealth, they've robbed se- not even just a hundred people, thousands of people of their humanity. And, continue, and in fact, their estates will continue to do so after their money, you know, however it's been distributed in their wells, it's gonna, they're going to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. So their money will always wreak violence on everybody else. And so whenever people think, oh, why are you being so callous? Why are you being so callous? Well, why don't you care when billionaires are siphoning off wealth from the working class? Mm-hmm. I'm being callous, but you have no understanding of how any of this works if you're going to sit there and defend billionaires. So that's really my stance on whether or not this is a tragedy and how I feel about, you know, these people passing away in this completely avoidable instance. Now, I think it makes sense for us to end this podcast on death, right? Because that's mm-hmm. our everyone's ultimate final destination, right? Yes, um, and I saw a TikTok recently that really grinded my gears. I was trying to find it uh, so that I could play a little snippet of it, but I'll summarize it. In this TikTok, this creator said something to the effect of the fact that these millionaires and billionaires died proves that privilege is not real. It is a social construct and death is the great equalizer. For starters, just because something is a social construct does not mean that it's not real. Exactly. Everything from the way that we view, interact with, value, people, place in, people places, and things, are, all these things are attached to social constructs. Mm-hmm. Social constructs are literally the axis upon which societies revolve. They have deep consequences. Exactly. Anyway, now onto this larger point about mm-hmm. death being the great equalizer. While the overwhelming majority of us are forced to 
be in this constant state of treading water mm-hmm. against these aggressive currents that are these interlocking systems of oppression, barely being able to survive and stay afloat under their weight. These five people who are the beneficiaries of all this exploitation decide to voluntarily plunge to the depths of the ocean in spite of all of the warnings of danger, just because they're bored, Mm -hmm. because they need something to do. Those are not the same. It is true that none of us can escape death. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely true. That's the final destination for all of us. But the way that we arrive at death is not the same. Saying that death is the great equalizer dismisses the fact that things like race and class are major determinants of health outcomes. Mm -hmm. So epidemiology would like a word with you. It's just, it it makes no sense. Words mean things, and I'm done. Yeah. And I think also something else that I really think about a lot is how can death be the great equalizer when some people's passing means that their resources, etc., are just passed on to generation of people mm-hmm. who continue to hoard that wealth and be able to move in a world, move within the world in a certain way. Whereas when other people die, they have nothing to pass on because they are the people who the wealthy people have exploited. Mm-hmm. So even the consequences of death aren't the same. The only thing that is the same is that we will all turn into dust. Yeah, that's it. They will all waste away. But actually, if there was ever to be any sort of like scientific marvel that found ways to preserve people and then bring them back, whatever it might be, even that would only be accessible to people with wealth and resources. Mm -hmm. So the only equalizing part is, again, us wasting away. But the way in which we reach death and the consequences of our deaths are not Not equal on any level at all. And even the legacies we we leave behind, most working class people who are the ones who make the world spin, who are the ones who get everything working they wake up and everything's working because of all the labor being upheld by working class people they don't get to leave behind legacies they don't get to leave behind stories that are remembered forever mm-hmm. unless they're random anomalies or their their story is highlighted because of something just really strange or you know interesting about it but that's not a regular occurrence mm-hmm. the very people who make this world what it is will never be highlighted they will be forgotten they'll be Maybe two generations of people who remember them, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Well, they will truly be forgotten. Whereas wealthy magnates who have plundered and colonized and done all these things get to keep records of who they once were because they had the power and wealth to do so. Mm-hmm. But all the people who made all that power and wealth possible are forgotten in the sands of history. Yeah. So no, death is not the great equalizer. Mm-mm. Period. Period. So... That was quite an episode. Mm-hmm. We truly traversed through <laughs> the highs and the lows, yes. dodging the, the wreckage. <laughs> yes. And I feel like, you know, we touched on a lot of different topics within this one episode. Mm-hmm. If you guys enjoyed it, come back for more. And as always, keep supporting us. Share this with your friends. Let us know if there's topics that you want us to see cover more of. Mm-hmm. And again, we'll try to be more consistent. Yes. Try. Yeah, emphasis on the try. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I have nothing major coming up in my life for the next couple of months. So, but that's the thing, though, with life. Life is like life is always lifing. It's like, oh, you said what? Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So yes, as always, tune in 
the week after this yes for this episode for the next episode and uh we hope to see you there we'll see you then